Welcome to the Serial Talker Podcast. I'm Peter Von Gom, and today we have a riveting true story from Ukraine. Now, this story takes place in the 1990s, which was a time of great change in Ukraine. It was during this period that Ukraine became independent from the Soviet Union. There was also some strife between those who were pro-Russia and pro-Europe. It was during this rebuilding of the country that some found an opportunity to create enormous wealth for themselves. So, without further ado, with that as a backdrop, let's get into the story. I was a young boy in Ukraine in the mid-90s. The Soviet Union had collapsed. The country was in turmoil. Corrupt government, police, mafia, fighting over influence, the spoils of regime change. Everything was up for grabs, as long as you were willing to get your hands dirty. And there were plenty. Money will do that to people. You'd have to be smart, bold, ruthless, and thick-skinned to navigate your way to the top, whilst rubbing shoulders with the other wolves. The whole story goes very deep, but I'm willing to share just one brief experience in particular, for if I were to try to tell it all, I'd have to write a book. I was just a kid, living in blissful ignorance, the day a sober reality came knocking at the front door. My daily life seemed perfectly normal to me, for I had nothing to compare it to. I was raised in opulence, an enormous home in a secluded wealthy neighborhood in Ukraine. We had 24-hour security, surveillance cameras, armed men, and dogs. Let me tell you about those dogs. They were military-trained, rippling with muscle and razor-sharp canines that they flashed whenever we walked past their enclosure, each built like a brick shithouse, the type that will tear an intruder to ribbons. We couldn't keep any pets for fear of them getting outside where they most certainly would be turned to mincemeat. My freedom of movement was restricted, for I always had to be followed by a security guard, which bothered me a bit. I couldn't see the necessity, nor would I be able to really comprehend it. Even had someone tried to explain it properly, I was simply too young. All I saw was an inconvenience. I was living in a bubble. My father was an entrepreneur. Much of what he was doing was a mystery to me at the time. I knew for a fact we had a higher-than-average standard of living and a very privileged lifestyle, but I was clueless as to how big of a gap it was and what it took to get there. Given that everything is a matter of perspective and that I only saw life through the lens of affluence, unlike what is possible today with the magic of this alien technology we call the Internet, I had a rather distorted vision of what normal was. I had nothing to compare it to. I assumed the life we had was not that much different from everyone else. To me, it seemed perfectly normal to be driven to school by a driver with a bodyguard beside him in a large, luxury Mercedes. To have these men constantly watch me and my surroundings while I was at school or playing with my friends, on the lookout for anything suspicious or any person that may pose a danger. The school I attended was a school for privileged children, so my situation was not unique in any way 
We had little interaction with other normal kids outside our bubble. But when we did, we never felt there was a gap. We were just kids and had finer clothes. But at the end of the day, we were just kids doing what kids do, playing outside, studying, all the usual innocence of youth. We weren't concerned with the games adults play, monetary status and comparing how big their dicks are every chance they get. One particular evening that is cemented in my memory took place at our home, and it still frightens me when I recall it. It was this defining moment that stirred my young mind and changed something in me. I realized for the first time in my young life just how different my family was. My father was out, as he usually was in the evening, doing business, making deals, rubbing shoulders with those he needed to keep close ties with. It was bedtime for me. I brushed my teeth, turned out the lights in my second-floor bedroom, and was laying in bed, just fading to sleep, when I heard some commotion downstairs. I could hear that my father just came home, albeit more agitated than usual, and he was not alone. I heard other adults speaking loudly and feverishly. I could tell something was off. As I was about to make my way downstairs, my father rushed up the stairs. He was all wound up, fidgety and pale-faced. He was still wearing his coat, I remember. I could see he was looking past me, somewhere in the distance. He made sure me and my mom were okay, and told me in a calm yet assertive tone to close the blinds, stay on the floor, away from the windows, and under no circumstance to turn on the lights. I had no intention to argue with him, as I saw everything I needed to see written across his face, and I immediately complied. It was one of those situations where you knew not to ask why. His eyes and the air spelled out everything. He instructed me to stay with my mom, and he left. Further commotion ensued. As curiosity got the better of me, I crawled to the staircase to take a peek downstairs. I could see security guards pacing around the house, people on the phone and walkie-talkies exchanging information, engaged in an animated discussion. My eyes crossed with one of the adults, who gave me a stern look, forcing me to retreat back to my room. Even though I couldn't see outside, through the gaps in the blinds, a blue light from outside was flashing and illuminating my darkened room. I knew a police car had rolled up. As if shit wasn't real enough already, now it was really getting real. My mom was just as lost as I was, but made no attempts to communicate with the people downstairs to gather any information. To say she was concerned would be an understatement. I'll never forget the look of fear in her eyes. But she also maintained a sense of maternal protection and calm. This commotion was completely out of the ordinary. We weren't living in a war zone, but she handled it as though she had been through a drill and conditioned on how to keep her composure and think clearly in such situations. My mother and I lay there motionless. We didn't talk. At least, I don't recall communicating about anything. We just laid there, listening to what was going on outside and downstairs. It's important to consider 
that at the time, in Ukraine, the average high schooler had much less exposure to the workings of the adult world. TV content was heavily moderated and censored. There was no internet. Movies were hard to come by. The discrepancy between my daily routine and what was unfolding was very pronounced and shocking. In today's world, many things we see and deal with, we simply do not feel that hard to believe. In today's world, many of the things we see and deal with simply don't feel that hard to believe because of the overwhelming exposure to world affairs via the media. Nowadays, things are, in a sense, underwhelming as we've already experienced so many unexpected and unbelievable things in our lives through relentless exposure to the media. We're conditioned and numb to even the most extreme of violence and events. Considering the above, you can probably understand that up to that point, I had no reference for what to do or what to expect in this situation. Today, anyone who's seen a few episodes of Breaking Bad maybe wouldn't have flinched, all in a day's work. The night was deep, the air thick and weighty. Commotion around the house was rising, and those dogs were really barking now. But inside, there was a sense of calm. The lights were out. Eventually, everyone and everything became silent, and I fell asleep on the floor next to my mother. When I woke up, I could hear my mother speaking with my father. The conversation was more intense than usual, and they were both very alert, adrenalized. They came into my room, and we all sat on the bedroom floor. It was time to learn what the fuss was all about. We need to back up a bit to get a clearer perspective of what unfolded. You see, my father had this business partner. Let's call him Mr. X. I can't get into any details of what their business dealings consisted of for my own security and privacy, but I can share these very disturbing details of what took place that night and the kind of life I had been living and was oblivious to. There was a private event attended by my father and his business elites. The event was held at a nearby restaurant reserved and closed off to the public for the evening. You can imagine the kind of event where there are no expenses spared, the finest food brought in from around the world, prepared by the most skilled chefs, bottles of champagne a thousand dollars a pop, everyone dressed to the nines, the tuxedoed waitstaff tending to every wish and desire. My father's personal security team was there as they always were, observing him from afar, but not too far, so as to jeopardize any attempt of violence made against him. The head of security was Mr. S. He had years of experience protecting heads of state prior to this assignment, and was no stranger to observing his subject in a crowded environment. He was a large man, a close-cropped crew cut, and is rumored to have had a few notches in his belt for adversaries of the past, I never saw him smile. Ever. It's a delicate dance to protect who you're hired to protect, but also not be intrusive, able to jump to action at a moment's notice if the situation called for it. It's understood that the subject is obliged to comply with any decision made by the head of security, 
as any action forced on the subject is ultimately in his best interest. It's understood that the subject is obliged to comply with any decision made by the head of security, as any course of action taken was ultimately in the subject's best interest. The event was high-spirited. The musicians carried the energy with their instruments, and the guests mingled and talked business. The place was packed, and this is always a point of anxiety for a bodyguard. Mr. S. sensed something was off and became uneasy. One of the waiters seemed to be spending an abnormal amount of time watching my father from across the room, ducking in and out unpredictably at times, with no discernible pattern or purpose. He didn't appear to be retrieving food or drinks for the guests, but was causing concern for the security detail. Mr. S. concluded that the situation was too hard to read, and they needed to leave immediately. He approached my father, who was seated at a table with his colleagues, and informed him of his hunch. The car was brought to the rear door, my father was escorted safely to it, and they left for home. Due to the perceived threat to my father, protocol required the driver to use an unpredictable route. Driving unpredictably would confuse anyone tailing his car. They sped through side streets, weaving through traffic, until they reached the main and sole road that led to our house. It was a two-mile stretch to the residence, which was the most risky but unavoidable. Mr. S. knew if an attack were to take place, this is where it could be staged with the greatest effect as it was the only road the car was sure to take. Although the threat level was mostly based on intuition, they needed to take all precautions. The last bit of road to our gated community was unlit, dark, and sinister-looking. Just before the last turn leading up to the gated community, part of the road goes through a deep U-shaped hollow with very steep slopes and a bit of a curve to the side. All cars passing through this part are forced to slow down at the very bottom of the slope, for if they are going too fast, the car will bottom out and potentially severely damage the vehicle or cause it to lose control. This was a densely wooded area with deep, thick bushes on either side of the road. Out of sight from the approaching vehicle, someone was lying in wait weapons at the ready and dosing on heroin, an assassin was ready for business. We don't know why this individual was cranked up on heroin, but it's suspected that he was an addict coaxed into taking the hit in exchange for some smack. Miraculously, my father's car passed through without incident. Perhaps the gunman wasn't ready or was misinformed about which vehicle he was riding in. Meanwhile, back at the party, my father's business partner, Mr. X, was preparing to leave for home. He lived nearby in the same gated complex, and for no reason other than to exercise caution, decided it was best he head home too. His security detail also followed protocol and took an unexpected route home. However, they too had no choice but to use that sole road that led to our community. This time, the gunman was ready. As their car slowed at the bottom of the hill to avoid bottoming out, 
the assassin stepped from the bushes and unleashed an all-out hellstorm on the car. There were four people in the car, Mr. X, two security, and the driver. Bullets ripped through the car's doors and windows, glass shattered, and the men inside screamed out in fear and pain. It was hard to ascertain where exactly the attack was coming from, as a silencer-equipped Kalishnikov was used in the onslaught. Round after round after explosive round riddled the vehicle with hot lead. The shooter chose the perfect vantage point to hit his target, helplessly slowed by the steep gully of the hills. They were sitting ducks. The night was pitch black, except for the car's headlights, both of which had been blown out with the rain of bullets. The engine was hit, and hot steam was flowing from under the hood. Sitting up front with the driver was the head of security. He was facing the driver after the first volley of shots penetrated the car, making sure the driver wasn't hit and could still operate the vehicle. Then, a round made contact with him. He took a bullet to the left eye. It penetrated at a roughly 45-degree angle, with an exit wound at the temple. Ultimately, his reaction to turn his head toward the driver ended up saving his life. Had he been slow to react and was looking straight, the exit wound would have blown out the rear of his head, costing him more than just the eye. Incredibly, he managed to keep his composure despite the trauma and pressed the driver to keep going. The bodyguard, sitting in back, threw himself onto Mr. X when the first shots hit, shielding him from the bullets and taking several in his place. This all happened in the matter of 10 to 15 seconds, but felt like an eternity for the occupants. It's not known if the shooter ran out of ammunition or if the weapon jammed, but the firing ceased. The Soviet-made Kalishnikov AK-47 is renowned for its dependability and dead accuracy, able to fire up to 100 rounds per minute in full automatic mode. So, it's more likely that the shooter either ran out of ammunition, was too slow in loading another clip, or was simply too high on the heroin he had been shooting. The car was heavily damaged, but it still ran and they were able to limp to safety. Shortly after the car made it through the front gate towards the residence, the injured were rushed to the nearest hospital and the area was locked down by the police. Heavy security patrolled the hospital and roadblocks were quickly erected to intercept the would-be assassin. I'm not going to speculate about how everything unfolded further, step by step, as I don't have an accurate account of that part of the story, but I think you get the idea. The investigation on the following day established that at the site of the ambush, a silencer-equipped AK-47 with two clips was found, as well as a used heroin syringe, dozens of bullet casings, and a walkie-talkie, presumably used to communicate with the waiter and others who were involved in tracking the targets. The wannabe killer was not professional, and leaving the weapon behind was probably part of the plan. It most likely made sense to just dump the weapon on the spot, along with any evidence, and make a clean, unencumbered getaway, then risk getting caught while trying to conceal an AK-47 or dispose of it. It was determined that my father was the primary target, but thanks to the way Mr. S. handled security, my father and his team managed to escape unscathed 
and forced the ambush on the secondary target, Mr. X. The next morning, I went outside with permission and went next door to where the ambushed car sat injured. One of the tires was flat. It looked like something from The Godfather. There were bullet holes in the front windscreen, engine bay. The seats were pocked with holes and covered in blood. Judging by the bullet holes, it was obvious the bullets penetrated at a 90-degree angle from the front, meaning the shooter was perfectly positioned for the job. And this is where I cut the story short, as further details are too private to share. To give a sense of closure, I will, however, say that the case was never fully resolved. Circumstantial evidence established, albeit inconclusively, that this was a hit ordered by a business rival. As my father was in the spotlight due to the investigation, it proved to be a deterrent for my father to pursue any form of retribution. This experience was a defining moment in my young life. It really shook me up, knowing that I could have lost my dad that night in the most violent of ways. It was after this that new, even more restrictive security measures were put in place including my wearing a bulletproof vest while commuting to school. There were more events that took place throughout my high school years that added to the drama of my life, but nothing as extreme and rattling as that particular night in Ukraine. Wow! Just wow! What a story! There are some other details. Those who were ambushed all survived miraculously, including the guy who was shot through the eye. Ugh. He mentioned that this story was quite a while ago, and he now leads a normal, quiet life, which is probably a good thing. I like my sleepy life. I don't think I would trade it for anything. Although having a bodyguard might be kind of nice. I don't know. Thanks so much for listening, as always. Be sure and subscribe to the Serial Talker podcast. Also, the YouTube version is available of the same name, The Serial Talker. If you would like to support the production of these podcasts, you can always buy me a cup of coffee. Those details are in the description. And if you have a true story you would like to submit to me to consider reading, my email is in the description as well. Thanks always, guys. We'll see you on the next one. Bye for now.